Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. Hi everyone, I'm Aaron Noonan. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. My guest this week on the podcast is British Touring Car Championship Supremo and former Brock team manager, Alan Gow. Now in this part two of our chat, we talk about Super Touring, the two litre formula that boomed in the UK in the 90s in the British Touring Car Championship and how it effectively priced itself out of existence. We talk about the battle for Bathurst in the late 90s. It saw two years of two 1,000k races, Channel 7, Channel 10, V8 Supercars and Super Touring all caught up in things. Alan gives his views on that. He gives us his views too on meeting James Courtney when he was much younger and coming to manage him for the last two decades. He also tackles our National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions and the Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout. I chatted over the phone with Alan, of course, he's based in the UK, so the audio quality isn't probably as good as we would love, but nevertheless, it's the stories that are the star. So here we go, buckle up. Time to start part two of Alan Gow on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken. You touched on super touring, we can't talk to Alan Gow without talking about that decade-long two-litre era that, it wasn't called super touring when it started, it was two-litre Touring cars and it became known as, as super touring later on. Could you ever, could you have ever imagined that the British Touring Car Championship that Toka would become? I mean, I know it was a British championship, Alan, because it raced in Great Britain, but it always felt like it was a beyond Britain championship because you had amazing drivers coming from other countries, not just from the UK. Um, you know, guys like mm. Aiello and Tarquini and Beeler and Winklehock and. All, and Radisic, of course, um, to take on the locals, Cleland and David Leslie and Jeff Allen. And oh, I could sit here all day, night and go through yeah. them all. But the yeah. coverage that the championship had beyond the UK, not just Australia, but uh, there's people who would sit there, and I was one of them, when they would show the highlights on Channel 9's Wide World of Sports of a Saturday afternoon, and they would deliberately hold it off until quarter to five at the end of a four-hour show to make you, to make you watch the whole way through to get your eight minutes of BTCC action. Uh, it became bigger than Britain. Did you ever get a, a real sense of that at the time? Surely with, I guess, the, the big ticket teams and Renault with Williams and all that sort of stuff coming in, but I guess you could have never imagined that in 1991 when that all started. No, it made us look like geniuses because when we started the, the, the two-litre formula in 91 um, and it evolved into what it became and the championship evolved into what it became, we, it made us look like geniuses. It was all part of some master plan, which obviously it wasn't. But, yes, I did know I did know the impact the BTCC was having because, of course, out of the BTCC, we then started the, the, the Toka Australia, the Australian Super Touring Championship, and I also started one in North America, the North American Touring Car Championship. So yeah, for a period of years, I was every weekend flying around the world to, to, to another championship or another, which all resulted from the success of the BTCC. But, but yes, in those times, it was an extraordinary time uh, because once the FIA took over the regulations, uh, and, and that was probably one of the faults, we, we, uh, the, the mistakes we made at the time, 
is that the FIA took over the regulations in '94, I think it was, um, and then it just it just exploded as far as costs and everything goes. So, so when you remember we were just a domestic championship, ostensibly a domestic championship, but we had worldwide vision. You had companies uh, if if you weren't spending between eight and ten million pounds oh. per season uh, in our championship, you weren't going to get a win. Um, so yeah, we had at, at one stage we had ten manufacturers um, spending between eight and ten million pounds each uh, competing in our championship, um, and it was just extraordinary. Uh, and when you when you convert that to Aussie dollars, have have a think about what that what what what, uh, what that budget looks mm, like. Looks I'd, like. I'd, um, I'd like some of that. Yeah, oh, and the drivers are all getting paid. Everyone made a lot of money out of it. Now the drivers got paid a fortune. Um, uh, the teams made a fortune. Um, we did. You know, Toka made a, a fortune. Everyone did very very well out of it. But you know, that couldn't last. It was unsustainable. Um, but. The, the regulations were out of our hands. Uh, as I said, the FIA took them over, so there's nothing we could do about it. We as a BTCC couldn't do anything about it because um, you know, the, the way you control costs is through regulations. When we didn't have a control of the regulations, then we just had to sit back and, 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 and let it happen. Um, but it was extraordinary times. Um, uh, you, you know, when you, saw the, when you saw the money that they were spending on, on designing and developing the cars, the infrastructure that they would bring to a race meeting, it was it was it was astounding. Were you just waiting in those latter years of super touring for the inevitable cliff to come because you knew it wasn't sustainable and uh, the sheer numbers yeah, were just 90, adding up just to the crazy numbers? Correct. Ninety eight was was the year that I uh, that I thought, okay, this 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 hasn't got long to go. This has probably got another year or two to go. Because we had teams, we had manufacturers then complaining about how much they were spending. Up until that time, they didn't complain. Uh, so we had manufacturers complaining how much they were spending. One or two dropped out, and, and then that's that's usually, you know, that, that, that's usually like playing Jenga. You know, you, 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 one or two come out, and, and the whole rest fall, fall down. So '98, '99 uh, was probably the last big year of super touring. 2000 wasn't a great year. That was won by, by, by Ford because there was little opposition around, and that was the end of it. Um, so it was inevitable. And one of the things that springs into my mind about that whole two-litre era, particularly for, I guess, for the Australian listeners who followed the British Championship, but we had our own two-litre series here going on as well, is the Bathurst scenario, where we ended up with two years where there yeah. were two 1,000K Bathursts. Uh, the dust has settled. It's 20-something years ago. What's your feeling about how that all went down? Did, did it ever get mega personal with with you and Cochrane? And I know there was always barbs being fired in the press, mainly from him at you um, or Calvin O'Reilly yeah. or whoever it was. Uh, did you did you ever take it personally? Some of that stuff, or was it just business? It's just business, but uh, it got I I got annoyed by the fact that that people thought we were the pe- we were the big we were the bad guys in all this. Um, we had nothing to do with the split between between uh, um, uh, V8s and Channel 7 and Bathurst. had nothing to do with it. You know, we were running the Australian Super Touring Championship at the time. Channel 7 had, had the rights over, over Bathurst, as you know. 
And when they couldn't come to, to an agreement with, with Cochrane about money, inevitably, um, then Channel 7 came to us and asked, could we put a field on for Bathurst? So we did. Um, all we did is, 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 is do that. We didn't, we didn't, uh, we didn't, uh, uh, we didn't uh, start the issue. Um, uh, we, we just responded to a request by Channel 7 to put a couple of races on at Bathurst for, for, and, and, and that's, that's what we did. So how we got, how we got, uh, how we got uh, uh, seen as being the bad guys and all this was just pathetic. That really was pathetic. Um, uh, we, it, it, uh, so that that annoyed me, but the rest of it wasn't personal. And and do you know what? I've I think I've said about ten words in my whole life to Tony Cochran. I don't know Tony. I, he, he rang me one day about something. We had a very brief conversation, um, and that was it. I don't I don't think I've ever seen him since, or, or spoken to him since that conversation. So it wasn't personal, um, but. You know, we weren't the bad guys in all this. Channel Seven asked us to put on a put on a race because they couldn't come to terms to, to financial terms with with, with the uh, with the V eight. So that's what we did. Shoot me. Yeah, yeah. You, you answered a phone call, basically. <laughs> well, I answered a request from a, from a broadcaster who had a, who had the biggest race in Australia to 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 put a, to put a, to compete in that race. Why wouldn't you? Why would I say no to that? Um, so um, yeah, but but you know the, the villains of the piece was Channel Seven and V Eight not coming to terms, coming to financial terms, or coming to an agreement to, to to take to compete in that that race. We had nothing to do with that. Could could you even believe that that had happened? I mean, at the time, it was massive news with was, that V Eights were not going to be be going there. Could you have even fathomed that that was possible? That the opportunity would even ever arise? No, and 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 you know, looking back on hindsight, it was a ridiculous situation that should never, never have got there. Um, it was it was a willy waving competition between a broadcaster and a and, and another organisation, of ESCO. Um, uh, and and it was a shame that it got to that stage, and it is a shame that it fragmented uh, that event for a couple of years. Um, but you know, as I said, it wasn't our doing. Um, but I look. You look back in it now, and you think, how did that ever let? How did they ever let it get to that stage? Um, both parties, both Channel Seven and uh, Antigua. I guess, Alan, that the, there was the the thing that's overrided, and I find it a little bit annoying. But maybe time helps change these things. That those two two liter one thousands. If you just strip it back and forget the who was driving, what the cars were, what date it was, all that stuff, they were banging good car races. Um, the Audis and the, the BMs in the first year with the, the the Williams Renault team coming out and Menu and Plato. So we got we got very good cream in those couple of years where mm. we got we didn't just get the offcuts of the BTCC. We got TWR with Volvos. We got Williams Renault with Lagunas. We got the MSD Peugeot factory team. We got Vauxhall with Triple Eight. We got mm. looking back on it, we got the good stuff. I mean, we that those races really should be celebrated. They they were really good races, and and, and the problem with them is that they're, they're if you look at them in isolation uh, of of any of the politics go around going around, they were fantastic races. Both of them were great races, but the problem is they were being run under a cloud, you know, and 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 every lap is always a comparison, you know. It, 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 every time a person did a, a good lap in qualifying, 
then people say, oh, yes, but it's X amount of seconds slower than they did in a V8. Oh, God, give, me a, give us a break, guys. We're, no, we're, 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 we're not V8s. You know, look at the cars for what they are and look at the racing for what they are. Stop comparing. Um, but that was annoying because there was all sorts of bad messaging coming out from the other side, always constantly putting us down, always constantly uh, um, putting a negative influence over everything. We didn't do anything like that. We just came out here, put some great races on and went home again. What's the problem? <laughs> what was the... Um, I, it's funny, looking back on the, the magazine reports and the media stuff of the Europe before the, the days of social media and the the web where you can go and look up the, the stories from the last five years. And it's interesting, some of the names that we were being bandied about is there were a bunch, and correct me if I'm wrong or the reporting of the time mm. was wrong, there was a bunch of V8 drivers, not just Brock, who did drive in both races, I think uh, Alan Jones drove in both mm. as well, that were, were mm-hmm. keen to go and that were in negotiations and were having discussions with Toker about being placed in cars, Perkins, Ingle, some other guys who some V8 fans would have been amazed to know. But is that all right? Were there some of those names of uh, that were being wheeled and potentially pushed into cars or deals done that you can remember? Um, I can't remember the specific names. There was a lot of drivers that, that we had lined up for, for co-driving in cars and then they had... They had uh, uh, um, uh, influence exerted on them and were told they couldn't do it. Um, and, and I just think that's just so pathetic. Um, uh, and it also shows a, 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 a lack of commitment on, on, on the other side of saying we're happy in our own skin. Our, the V8 category is a great category. We know that Super Touring won't take over, so who cares if some of the drivers go and race in them? Uh, and I think, I think to a lesser extent, from what I'm seeing, that's sort of happening now with TCR in Australia. Is is, is that there's always an element of one side putting down the other, um, and I think that's really, really sad. Both categories can live side by side. Both categories in Australia back in those days happily live side by side. And it doesn't need people constantly going, comparing and, and putting the other side down because that's not a V8, so that must be crap. You know, um, it's it, it, it's really sad. Um, it's something that just doesn't happen over in Europe. Uh, there's so many different categories over here. Everyone lives happily side by side. We never compare ourselves with British GTs or anything else. It's just live and let live. Um, unfortunately, in those days, Live and let live didn't. It wasn't um, wasn't something that uh, that people went by, and um, it, it was we we ran those races on, uh, under a lot of pressure and a lot of uh, and a real cloud, uh, which was totally undeserved. It lasted two years, Alan, and then there was a. a many people will probably forget there was a, a year where there were two liter cars in '99, but it was just the local cars in a a shortened 500-kilometre race that was – I was there that weekend. It was miserably wet and cold to the point where mm. half the race was run under safety car. Uh, there were what had been called Bathurst Tourers, which were old OS cars that Bruce Williams and, uh, and Octagon had got involved in, but cams wouldn't permit them to be in the race, clearly a bit of pressure from from supercars. So was the fact that the 1,000K format and the, the cars coming from overseas, I, I presume, was just a case of – this costs a lot of money and Channel 7 stopped paying the money. Is that why it all sort of stopped? 
Yeah, absolutely. It was entirely up to Channel 7. Channel, as I said before, Channel 7 are the ones that, that, that offered us the, uh, the gig um, and, and underwrote the cost of doing it. And they underwrote that cost for two years. And after two years' time, I think they realised that uh, they, they couldn't sustain that sort of expenditure anymore. So it was entirely up to Channel 7. It was Channel 7's call to bring us into, into that event. And it was Channel 7's call uh, to, to, to stop doing it. Uh, you know, we, we were just responding to a request. Uh, it was a business. Uh, so, so in '99, I didn't come to Bathurst in that year. So, I, but I believe it was a, as you described it, it wouldn't have been a great event. Um, uh, and that was the end of that 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 two litres at Bathurst. It was, yeah. That was, and that was the end of Channel Seven's time with motorsport for many years before they yeah. got the the V8 supercar rights back. I think some seven or so years later. It's probably around that time, '99, 2000, that there's a kid who's been doing some karting that's probably at the point where he needs to go car racing and take the next step in his career. Uh, these days, he's uh, a supercars champion. He's Well, he's a veteran now, I guess we've got to say. But <laughs> tell me about when James Courtney came on your radar. And am I right in remembering that, that Crompton had a, a bit to play in this through through James's dad Correct. to connect you and you didn't know him previously? No. So it was, a, it was a, when I was there for the 98 Bathurst, um, and Neil said to me, look, there's someone I want you to meet after Bathurst. Um, he's a kid that needs a bit of guidance. I'm like, okay, fine. So, so James and his dad, Jim, um, came and saw me on the, probably the Monday after Bathurst, or the Monday or the Tuesday after Bathurst in Sydney. Uh, met him at a hotel, had a, had a drink, and, and discussed you know, where James wants to go in the future. Obviously, being a a young kid out of karting, all he wants to do is become a Formula One star. Um, so, and Neil spoke really highly of him. To be honest, I'd never really heard of James before I met him. Um, uh, he, he wasn't on my radar at all. Uh, but Neil spoke really highly of him. Uh, so I then decided, and I like him so much, you know, he's just a really great kid. Um, so I said, okay, come over, we'll, we'll see what we can do with you. So, uh, that started a 20-year relationship, uh, and, and uh, James and I still joke it's the longest relationship we've ever, we've both ever had. Um, <laughs> so, 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 although we, my wife's getting near the 20 years time, so it'll overtake it eventually. But, um, but uh, yeah, so he came over. Um, the plan was to do um, former British Formula Ford, uh, and of course. I was meant to be his manager, so I was meant to take a, a percentage of his of his income. Um, but for the first two years, I was doing 100% of his outgoings. Um, so I, I paid uh, I paid for his first year in Formula Ford. Um, and we ran with the Van Diemen team, um, and the second year we got some more sponsorship. And after that, we went into Formula Three, British Formula Three. Um, and James was just tremendously successful at everything he did. You know? And if you have a look at Anyone that looks at his career stats, you know, he's won in every category he's ever raced at at the top level. You know, so he's what twice world karting champion, senior and junior. He became British Formula Ford champion um, in his second year, won European Formula Ford champion. Then stepped up to Formula Three with Carlin and Jaguar Motorsport, which got him into a with Jaguar Racing, which got him into a Formula One test drive role. Um, and of course, as is well known, he he had mechanical failure at Monza, had a huge F1 testing shunt, um, uh, 
uh, and that knocked him out of uh, the F3 championship for a few weeks and that ultimately lost him the Formula 3 championship because up until that testing shunt, he was he was leading it by a country mile. Um, so then the following year, went to Japan, uh, won the Formula 3 championship there. You know, he's, he, every championship he's, he's entered into, any category of car he's entered into, he's won. Um, and there's very few drivers can say the same thing. Not just won a race, won the championship. Mm. That Jag testing. So I took a Monday morning. Sorry. Sorry, Alan. I was going to say that that testing crash with the Jag at, at Monza clearly was massive. Do you remember where you were when you, you heard the news and was it relayed to you how big it was or uh, the details? Because I guess it's what 2002. Um, it's not the period where absolutely everyone's got a mobile phone you know, attached no, to their it was, or it, Twitter or anything like that. I, I had a phone call from from uh, from the circuit, from the team, to say Jack is, uh, he's, he's had a shunt, big shunt, but he seems okay. He, he, he should be fine. He hasn't got any broken bones and all that sort of stuff. And he didn't. You know, he, it was um, it was all sort of neurological, if you like. Um, and then they uh, they they sort of do they they did the wrong thing to James because. They checked him out at the medical centre at the at, at Monza. They found he hadn't got anything broken. He wasn't bleeding. He wasn't doing anything like that. He had a headache, um, uh, and he had lost the use of his, the right side of his body. But that was a neurological thing, which they thought that that would that would get fixed up pretty quickly. Um, and and they gave him a couple of aspirins and put him on a cheap flight home. Um, now, if it was a proper if it was one of their full-time, if it was Eddie Irvine, they would have got a Learjet out for him, flown him back to the UK and put him in the best hospital you can find. With James, they drove him down to, down to, the, down to the airport, put him on a cheap flight to, back to the UK with a couple of, as I said, a couple of aspirins um, and said to him to go and see a doctor next week to get a checkup. Um, so the way that they treated him after the accident was absolutely appalling and honestly is one of the reasons why James never went further with Formula 1 because he said to me after that time um, he said you know what if this is what Formula 1 is about I don't think I want it Um, because that really that was a really bad experience for him not just the shunt itself but the way they treated him after it Um, and that really turned him off going into Formula 1 was there an opportunity for him elsewhere at all in that time that he decided that he didn't want to pursue or uh, or, or have a go at because of how yeah he felt there, after there that? was but yeah there, there was with another Formula One team but it wasn't a great team and, and it's honestly a team you wouldn't want to in any event you wouldn't want to drive for any anyway so we he had an offer for it with with the team the following year. Um, that that would have just he would have just been on a hiding to nothing and been. You know, last or second last on the grid every race, and there's no joy in that at all. So we had an approach from Japan uh, to go and race for Tom's in Japan, and I said, James, this is a, this is a new beginning for you. You'll 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 love the experience. Um, you should go. So uh, that's what he did, um, and he did he did yeah, he did really well in Japan. You know, he he, uh, he drove Formula Nippon. Formula 3 obviously won the championship and then drove in Super GT the following year. Um, did really, really well. Um, 
and and made good money. You know, uh, Japan in those days was paying was paying really good money. So James, you know, his his attitude has always been he didn't for him it wasn't I only wanted to be a Formula One driver. Nothing else matters. I think I had some some bearing in him in changing his attitude to say. You don't if if you don't make it in Formula One doesn't mean you're not successful. Um, so as long as you can become a professional, successful racing driver and enjoy what you're doing and make good money doing what you're doing, then that is a successful career, um, and that's that's what he's been doing. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment, but I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in some of the world's largest wind turbines, some standing as tall as 260 metres, that's almost twice the height of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and with rotors as big as 220 metres in diameter, that's almost the distance from the start line to Hell Corner at Mount Panorama. Now these rotors turn on big shafts and at each end is a massive Timken tapered roller bearing. The biggest one with an outside diameter of 3.425 metres. That's about three quarters the length of a supercar race car. The bearings have to be perfectly reliable in withstanding massive loads and in extreme conditions like in the North Sea, where a single turbine is expected to produce enough renewable sourced energy to power 16,000 European homes year round. We'll bring you some more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast this year. Now, it's back to the podcast. One of the things he told me a few years ago, which I, uh, I thought... It'll was be right. a lie. <laughs> well, you can, prove this one, you can prove this one right or wrong, Alan. Uh, we did a couple of years ago uh, with Fox Sports some Bathurst marathons when Fox took over supercars. And we made some documentaries and we spoke to various drivers about various parts of their careers and particularly Bathurst. And he mentioned that Brock's last Bathurst in 04 that he did with Mark Scaife and the Holden Racing Team, that James was planned to be his co-driver, but it couldn't happen because I think he might have had a date clash or, or something like that. Was that true? Was that close to happening? Yep. Could it have happened? Yep. Peter was a great fan of James. Um, and obviously because of my relationship with Peter and my relationship with James, that was going to happen. Absolutely. Um, but, but it didn't because there were some clashes um but, but peter very much was was was, it, was he was a huge james courtney fan um right from the very early days um and some of it is probably down to my as i said my my influence or relationship with peter um but he I, and my memory's not not great at the best time i think peter knew james before i did i think peter knew james when james was doing karting um so Pete, so Peter was was a James Courtney fan right from you know when he was sixteen um, before I even knew him, and absolutely when the time came that there's an opportunity for James to, to partner Peter in the car at Bathurst, that's what was going to happen. But unfortunately, uh, as you said, it didn't uh, for for those reasons. Mm, sliding doors, things that could have, would have, yeah. but but didn't happen. Yeah, exactly. He did get there the next yeah. year though uh, with Jim Richards as, as a co-driver, and then he of course went to Stone Brothers. How close yep. was he to going full time with with HRT or, or elsewhere than than where he ended up at Stones? It's long enough ago. You could be really honest here and tell us everything. I swear, no one will tell anyone. <laughs> none of this is none of this is a secret. 
it, in any business or in anyone's career, you deal with what you've got on the table. Um, uh, James had. We were talking to to uh, we were talking to uh, HRT about the future, but they couldn't they couldn't at that stage offer James a full time drive. Um, it might have been some co drives in the endurances and all stuff with an option of going into a full time drive the following year. You know the year after that. But at that stage, they couldn't offer James a full-time drive. Rostone did, um, so you know th- there was there was no decision in, in, in that respect. We 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 took Rostone's office, SBR's offer, um, and I had to ring ring Mark and say, "Sorry, Scapey, but I'm going to take the seal um, uh, because, as I said, Scapey at that stage couldn't offer us a full-time drive. Uh, he could offer us something in the future, but not for that." for that following year. So, you know, you, you, you take the deal that's in front of you. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people right now in the world who any deal is a good deal with the way that things are. Well, exactly, exactly. You know, you can't live on promises. You know? um, and and I have no doubt that eventually Scopey would have given given uh, James a full-time gig, but he couldn't offer it in, in the year that we needed it. You know, James wanted to come back from Japan, so he wasn't going to sit on his hands for a year and just do Bathurst and Sandown or whatever, you know. Um, he wanted to be, he wanted a full-time gig driving. Um, as I said, Scafie said, I can't do it this year, but I can do it the following year. So we had to take the deal that was in front of us. One of the things that um, I'm interested in in James's career, and I'm interested in your take too, Alan, is the time that he had with Stone Brothers there was great promise there, but ultimately not a, a lot of results. What, what didn't gel there? Why didn't that quite work out? Was it because the bar had been maybe set too high in all of our minds because of Ambrose before that, or why didn't that seem to work out as well as we probably all expected it to? Um, I don't know. He, he had a I, – I, you've got the results in front of you, probably. I, how, how many wins did he have with Stone Brothers? Two? Three? Uh, I don't know what it was. I think one or two. One? Yeah, yeah one. Yeah. Maybe 2008 at Queensland Raceway, I remember he had a win. For sure, in the early start, in the early part, probably the first year, he was James was overdriving it. When when you take over a, a car that was been so successful in the hands of Marcus Ambrose, there is a huge amount of expectation on on your shoulders. Um, and and given that James hadn't done a full season in, in supercars before, um, you know th- there was a lot of expectation on his shoulders, and for sure he was overdriving it. And probably for the first couple of years. He was overdriving it, and he will admit that too now. I'm sure. Uh, there's many a times in that first couple of years I had to sit down and say, "Listen, you need to have a rethink about what you're doing and how you're going about doing it." So I think because of because of the expectation level that was put on him, um, he was overdriving it. Made made a few mistakes. Probably bounced off a few too many cars. Um, uh, so that's probably why the results weren't there. He had the speed, um, but ultimately didn't get the results. Did that relationship with he and the Stones kind of wind down to the point where it was time to look elsewhere? Yeah, and it wasn't. It, it didn't. It didn't wind down to. It, it, it wasn't a bad relationship at all. You know, it was just. It was time to move on. Um, but neither the Stones. Want, the Stones didn't want him to go, um, and nor was the relationship bad enough where we had to leave. It was just okay. We've done. We, we've done our time. Here's time to move on. And there was a good offer. You know, on the table from from DJR, which we took. What do you think 
I think a lot of our uh, race fans here in Australia have a an impression of James as he's always got a smile on his dial. He's already he's very good with the media. Uh, he's had a lot of um, success on the track. He's got a bit of a persona as a, a good fun guy, but he's a he's a brutally serious racer as they all are, no matter their public personas or, or how they present. What have you seen change in him over the the twenty years from when he first had that drink with you in? you know, after Bathurst in, what, 1998 to, to where he is now. What's the biggest change in him? Well, uh, the thing that he hasn't changed is he's still an idiot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, still, we still have the same laugh that we had when he was 17 years old and everything else. Um, look, he's matured, but, God, there'd be something wrong with a guy after 20 years if he hadn't matured. Um, he, he James is is, in, is incredibly good in in and out of a car. You know the sponsors love him, the media love him, and he 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 really knows how to work that side of it. Um, and that's nothing that I've taught him. It's it's something that he's he's been very good at naturally. Um, so his 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 ability to to engage with people, to engage with sponsors and everything else is 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 one of the best in in in, in the field. Um, he he's also as a driver, you know, he's 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 matured a bit more as a driver. You know, he's that's why at the difficult events, at the difficult tracks, James does really well. You know, at the street circuits, I think he became known he became quite well known for being really good on street circuits. You know, and street circuits are low grip, walls right, you know, next to you that any mistake is gonna be is gonna be um, you know, bad for you. Um and that's why he was really good at Townsville and really good at Adelaide and all the street circuits. So as a driver, he's, he's a very, very good, precise driver. Um, sometimes, like all drivers, a bit of a bit of black mist comes in front of him if he gets annoyed with another driver or gets upset about something. But I think most drivers are like that to a large extent. <clears throat> but, um, you know, he, he, he's... He's a he's a he's a he's an incredibly loyal driver. A very you know he's been uh, walking to us for what nine years, um, and could have left many times over. Um, but he's very loyal as, as a driver. Um, and I don't know where I'm going with this. Um, he's, <laughs> he's an he's, idiot. I think that's where you're going eventually. He's an idiot. He's an idiot. <laughs> but it. He, but he's he's a good bloke, and and you know what he's one of the, he's one of my best mates. You know we've 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 lived we've lived through each other's lives, and gone through such a lot together. You know that uh, that you know he's 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 on saying that I'm like his brother, father, best mate, all rolled into one, which I guess I am. Are you still in the same role with him professionally as you've always been, or has it wound down over the years, or has it stayed the same? <coughs> It wound down at the end of last year. We had the end of last year was the twentieth year we've had a formal contract. Um, we don't have a formal contract anymore, um, uh, but I'm I'm still helping him. Um, whether he listens to me is a different, different <laughs> matter. But but um, you know our formal our formal contract finished at the end of last year, and as I said it was twenty years, probably one of the longest contracts any drivers had with a manager. Um, but uh, but still, I'm still involved, and I still talk to him every day, every second day. I still in, he still involves me in every decision and every discussion. So, um, and I'll always do that. Was that one twenty-year contract or multiple multi-years? Because a twenty-year contract is something that is 
very, very rare in any form of business. Yeah. No, it was five. There were five-year contracts, and we kept on, and then we kept on extending each five-year contract. So, um, so they were five by five by five by five. You know, they all had options. There were five-year contracts with five-year options rolling over. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it is rare. And both of us could have got out of those contracts at either time, but but both of us didn't want to. You know, they were. They were I think I was good for him and his career, um, uh, and and I earned good money out of his career as well. So it worked for both of us. One more on James before we move on to some of our fan questions. What's his mm-hmm. status now? I mean, obviously the the team Sydney thing didn't work out as he would have intended it to. Can you see him getting a full time drive in supercars again in the future, or maybe going and doing something else in motor racing to keep him entertained and engaged and, and racing? Uh, I can see him back in supercars. And I'm sure you'll see him back in supercars when the season restarts. Any more? No. <laughs> you haven't changed. You're no, still uh, in fortress. Uh, uh, he, um, I'm sure that you'll see him um, at, at a lot of races, uh, not necessarily doing the full season, but he'll, I'm sure you'll see him at a lot of races this year um, competing. Um, but that's to be announced at another time. We look forward to just getting some racing going that he and the rest of the team yeah, exactly. can, uh, can be among. Uh, I'm not sure if you've listened to our podcast before. I'm guessing you haven't, and that's okay. Um, but we've got what we call Couch Racer Questions. It's with thanks to the National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama Bathurst, who are one of our great supporters. It's our chance to let the fans ask some questions that maybe we haven't covered, and there's some damn good questions that have rolled in here. So I'll go through them rapid fire. I'm all, I'm, yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm right up for that. I do Q&As all the time over here, so I'm ha- very happy to do that. All right, we'll go rapid fire then. Uh, Howard asks, okay. would one engine manufacturer work for V8s in your opinion? It relates to something we talked about earlier. Um, yes, it would, because I think all your engines are pretty much equal now anyway, aren't they? So so what's the difference between having one en- engine manufacturer supplying the whole field? Um yeah, why, why wouldn't it run? Why wouldn't it work? Okay. Uh, Andrew asks, what thoughts went through your head when Barry Sheen crashed Bradley Jones' Sierra at Winton in 1989? Uh, am I allowed to swear? Yeah, go on. <clears throat> oh, fuck. You know, um, <laughs> it was, it was, it, it's one of those deals that was, seemed like a good idea at the time. Brock, Brock thought, uh, Brock was mates with Barry and Barry wanted to have a drive the car. So we're, Winton testing anyway, and it was Brad's car. <clears throat> so, um, you know, we um, we just let him have a have a run, and we're standing on the pit wall at that stage, and um, and he hit the pit wall right in front of us. And we thought, oh God! And and it was it, it couldn't have come at a worse time. Um, <clears throat> but it was an expensive it was a it was an expensive PR exercise putting Barry in the car. <laughs> and I'm sure you never let him forget about it for many years. <clears throat> well, I didn't actually. I, I, Barry wasn't a mate of mine. He was a mate of Peter's. But uh, do you know what? I think I don't think Peter really got on with Barry after that. I think he's, Peter was really annoyed with, with with Barry and the way he did it yeah, uh, right. because it was a totally unnecessary shunt. Costly too at a time when uh, probably could very have costly. Been, yeah. We didn't. It was just, it just, yeah, of all the times for it to happen, that was not the time. 
a lot of larders needed to be sold to uh, fix up that Sierra, I'm sure. Uh, Shannon asks, this is an interesting one, this bit of a, an insight. Apart from contract negotiations, not much is known by the fans what a driver manager actually does. So uh, maybe taking your situation with James, uh, what do you do regularly for your driver and sporadically over the course of a, a season and a year? What, what sort of things are you doing? Um each driver, I, I don't know about other driver managers, and and honestly, I'm not really a driver manager. I've only ever managed two two drivers or three drivers in my life, and that's James um, Paul Radis, which I didn't have a formal contract with, but I helped, you know, just advise him. Um, so I'm not really a driver manager, and I'm sure a lot of or most driver managers would do a far better job than I do. Um, I became James's best mate, so I would advise him on all sorts of things, not just racing, not just contractually, but but through his personal life, through his, you know, buying houses, all, all this sort of stuff. You know, I, I would get involved, I would be involved in every aspect of James's life. But I'm sure that's totally different to how normal driver managers work. So I can't really answer that question other than in that way. And, and that is, James and I became very close personal friends, still are obviously, and I became embedded in all aspects of his life. So it went far beyond being just a driver manager. Yeah, life manager in a way, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, of an idiot, apparently. You said it. We're going to have <laughs> to keep running idiot. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is an interesting <laughs> one. Twitter throws up all sorts of things. Peter A, now remember that name, asks, who was your favourite mm. partner in Toka Australia? I've got a funny feeling that's a loaded question. Yeah. <sighs> There Peter was only, there was only three Radisson. partners, and I'm talking to one of them. Exactly. T- T- TM, Terry Morris, myself, and Peter Addison. So obviously that's a Peter Addison question. I reckon. And obviously I'll have, I'll have to say Peter Addison. Um, but um, uh, that's very sad that he would have to ask. I'm very <laughs> disappointed in you, Peter, for asking that question. <laughs> uh, um, but P- Peter was I'll tell you, I'll tell you the reason why probably Peter was the best partner is that every time he used to come to Australia, he'd have a fleet of cars. He'd have some really nice cars, Ferraris, Nissan, uh, Skyline, GTRs, all this sort of stuff. And he'd always just give them to me, whatever car you want to borrow. Um, And there's one year I went to Bathurst and I took his Skyline to Bathurst uh, and Terry Morris and I were driving to Bathurst and, and I ran out of talent on some bend and had a shunt and and put, put the Skyline into the Armco. Uh, halfway between Sydney and Bathurst, um, and I rang Peter up and said, "Look, I'm really sorry, mate. Um, it was actually quite a big shunt. Terry Morris broke his rib, um, oh. uh, and I said, I said, I said, really sorry, mate. I've, 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 you know, I've smashed your car up. He said, no, no problem. I'll send another one up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so his, his, his generosity was fantastic. I would, I would have, uh, I would have had a totally different reaction to that. Now I get why he's your favourite partner. Another GTR, so please, will, uh, dial it up here. Yeah, well, he just said, I'll send a Ferrari up. No, I'll, I'll, get, I'll be fine. <laughs> but but um, there's not too many people would have done that. That's true. Um, Zane from Twitter asks, this is a good one, whose idea was it for the Toka PlayStation games? They gave a lot of youngsters like myself and um, a few others, the inspiration and love for motor racing when they were kids playing video games. And he says, please, can we get another one because E-Series racing is going so well. Who can claim credit for the Toka 
and Toka 2 games that right. so many people who probably didn't know and followed British Touring Cars, they knew Toka because of the, the game rather than the, than the racing. Oh, yeah. They were enormously successful. I can't claim credit for it. Um, uh, Codemasters, which are the game's uh, developer, approached me and, and said, you know, we'd like to do this, and it's never been done before. There was never a single uh, a championship racing game before. Uh, of any consequence, uh, and and we said yes and went into a deal, and, and and so I can claim credit for agreeing to do it for them to do it, but it wasn't it wasn't my it wasn't my uh, my decision. It was, it was Code Masters came to us, but it was an enormously successful game, and that game sold in its millions, millions. You know, it, it, the first, the second, the Toka Two game was the most, was the most successful. And that sold over three and a half million copies. Um, and at, at that stage, it was the biggest selling racing game in the world. That's a good cut for Toker in that, I would guess, too. Yeah, we did okay. Mm, we did I'm okay out did. of that. Yeah, I'm guessing you did. Yeah. Um, and, and in answer to his second part of the question is, we're in final stages of uh, negotiation to produce a new BTCC game, so that hopefully should be coming out in the next 18 months, two years. Okay, good to hear. That's cool. That's cool. Um, two more to go from our Couch Racer questions, thanks to the National Motor Racing Museum. Uh, Jeff on Twitter, he says, can you tell us about the time that John Cleland and company used your credit card to pay for an expensive meal? I wouldn't be shocked by this at all. In fact, I'd be shocked if it only happened once. It, it, well, it didn't. It didn't happen. It didn't only happen once. That's, that's, it's a running thing that we used to have. So. On a, on a Saturday night at a BTCC event, there'd be a, uh, half a dozen of us um, would go out for dinner. John, Jeff Allen, uh, Steve Soap, uh, a few others. Um, and and it would always be a game of spoof as to who was going to end up paying for it. Um, you know, so everyone would always go to the toilet at the time when the bill got you know, <laughs> delivered to the table, all this sort of stuff. And there was one night when I went to the loo, um, but I'd unfortunately left my wallet in my coat on the back of the chair. So the bill came, and it was an extraordinarily expensive bill because we used to enjoy ourselves. Um, and John took the credit card out of the wallet, and in those days it wasn't pinned, it was just signed, you know, the, the, the credit card slip. Uh, took it out of the, my wallet, um, paid for it, put it back in. By the time I came back from the... Uh, they said, no, it's fine. John's paid for the bill. It's all done. I was very generous of you. Um, and then about you know a month later, I got the credit card bill for about two and a half thousand quid oh. um, for, 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 for the meal. Um, so, But don't worry, I got it back. I, I, I got it out of him in, in all sorts of different ways. Uh, I'm sure. And we need to get him on this podcast down the track. He's a ripper. We loved having him in yeah, Australia he's a, when he he's, came he's, out and drove with Brock and the two-litre staff and Pinnacle and Scaife. He's, uh, yeah, he's fun. Yeah, he's, he's a fun. good man. He's a good man. Not bad for a Scott uh, who sells Volvos. Um, uh, <laughs> one more here that's actually our Castrol question of the week, Alan. Uh, Conrad asks, what happened – with James Courtney potentially going to FPR instead of HRT? Um, it's exactly the same as I, I described to you with going to SPR. Um, we were talking to FPR, or it was actually through Charlie Schwerkold. Mm-hmm. Charlie was doing a deal with, was, was going to do a deal with FPR. Um, um, and it was happening, 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 but nothing with concrete was done. 
Uh, and it got to the stage where we had to make a decision. We had a contract in front of us from HRT and we had a potential contract coming to us from FPR. But eventually, as a business, you've got to make, as a, you've got to make a decision. Um, and, you know, I deal in realities, not maybes. So we took the HRT deal. That was the only contract on the table at the time. The other one was... Uh, you know, a definite maybe it's going to happen, it's going to happen, but we had never seen a contract from them. So I don't know why people think that we all of a sudden uh, did the wrong thing by FPR and went to HRT. HRT gave us a contract. FPR didn't at that stage. Very simple decision. Yep, you can only sign the paper that's in front of you rather than the paper that's not in front of you. Uh, yeah, you can't bank, you can't bank maybes. No, um, no. So, so it's a very simple, it's a very simple decision. But, but for some, some people at the time, made it try to try to make it look like we had done the dirty or or reversed our decision or whatever. We hadn't. We had, as I said, you know, there was only one contract in front of us. That's the one we signed. And that question was from Conrad, and that's our question of the week thanks to Castrol, and Castrol's much more than just oil. It's liquid engineering. They provide the oils, fluids, lubricants for today and the future for every driver, every rider, and every industry. Follow them on Facebook to stay across the latest in motorsport with exclusive competitions and, and maybe plenty more of content to, uh, to keep you abreast of. I've got through the plug. There's one more to come, Alan. Uh, you would have remembered over the years the top 10 shootout at Bathurst. It's the annual part of uh, the Saturday to get ready for the big race on Sunday where everyone has a run against the clock. We've got the Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout, which is for our, our friends at Motor Focus. They're a home of quality scale models. They stock all the big brands. I'm sure there's some old Super Tourers and Toka cars in among their shelves up in Queensland. Uh, jump on their website, motorfocus.com.au, or stop in and visit them. Uh, Unit 9, number one Stockwell Place in Archerfield, Queensland. Basically, Alan, this is a fancy form of word association. I'm going to run through 10 things. You give me the first thing that comes into your head about all of them. I'll let you have one word, maybe okay. two or three, if you can if you can get through there. Uh, how okay. do you sum up the following in one word? I'll start with some easy ones, and it might get a little harder. Uh, Alan Moffat. Fantastic guy. Um, I love him to death. <laughs> James Courtney. I've got a funny feeling I know the word here. Idiot. <laughs> yep, there you go. Uh, apart from that. Um. <laughs> what can you, how do you describe your best mate? Um, he's, he's, he's a great driver. Yeah. Uh, Andy Rouse. Great engineer, difficult person. Mm-hmm. Tony Cochran. Never met him. John Cleland. Great fun. Um, uh, one of the funniest guys you'll ever spend time with. Brad Jones. Another idiot. <laughs> With less hair. <laughs> Steady. Um, Peter Brock, in a word, it's that's hard, but pick one. Best driver I've ever had, that I've ever known. It's not one word, but I'll put a lot of hyphens in and that'll make it one word. That works okay. Okay. Uh, Neil Crompton. Uh, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> my my world is surrounded by idiots. Yeah, I was going to say, and these are your friends, Alan. Best communicator in motorsport. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Uh, oh, and Paul Radisich, he's the last one. Ah, uh, the quiet assassin. Mm. 
I reckon you're right there. Hey, Alan, thank you so much. There's so many things that we we haven't got to cover off, but we have covered a, a huge amount of, of your career. Um, we hope to see the well, we hope to see that BTCC video game up and about very soon. We can't wait to see that. Uh, fingers crossed that the BTCC gets back on track very soon. Thanks, Alan. We really appreciate it. All the best for the rest of the year. I thoroughly enjoyed it, Aaron. Thank you for the time. Well, there you go. Part two of our fantastic chat with Alan Gow. It was great to spend some time with him and go back down memory lane and unearth a few things that perhaps he hasn't spoken or thought about for quite some years. Of course, don't forget to visit our V8 Sleuth bookshop. Head to v8sleuth.com.au, click on Bookshop tab, and that will take you into our store where you can pick yourself up a bargain, including some fantastic Peter Hughes prints. Pete's one of the best automotive artists around, and he's done some amazing works over the years. We've got a supply of those now in our online store with some very new items coming soon. Can't tell you what they are, can't give you any hints, but let's just say if you could go around the clock that would be something that would be probably giving away what's coming. Nevertheless, I reckon you can read between the lines. We'll see what unfolds and we'll announce it very soon. Thanks again for everyone for your feedback on our podcast. Tell your mates who don't listen to it. Tag them in social media. Get them involved. Make sure that they subscribe so they don't miss an episode. And of course, you can follow us on all the social platforms. We're really busy on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And sign up to our newsletter through our website too. You won't miss a thing. Occasionally we throw out there some good deals and special offers and you get to know about things first before anybody else anyway we're done part two of alan gow is in the books on the v8 salute podcast powered by timkin if you haven't listened to other episodes go back through the back catalog on the website enjoy some of the great chats we've had over the last 12 months but in the meantime we'll see you soon on the v8 salute podcast powered by timkin do you know how to find the right oil for your car now you can find out quickly and easily online Thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number 2, and oil and find out.